Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Had a good day? It's been a great day. Hanging with my lady and her bestie. We had brunch. We did have brunch. Brunch is always good. Getting up for Christmas. Yes, getting ready. And of course, we are trying to give our listeners a fantastic Christmas. We have our 12 days of Christmas, which means we have a lofty goal of recording 12 episodes this month. That's a lot of content. This is episode number three. Oh, Lord, we got a lot of work to do. In the month of December. Okay. Well, we're there. We're like, what? That's a fourth of the way there. Yeah. And we're (laughs) about a a little, about around a weekend. So we're getting there. We're doing it. Yeah. Just a quick reminder. um, We have trivia on Monday nights at 630. If you are in the Western North Carolina area, Frog Level Brewing, come check us out. Dylan's usually there playing trivia, and I'm hosting. Yeah, it's been pretty good so far. So if you're around Waynesville, North Carolina, come check us out, 6.30 on Mondays. Yes. Also, let's give a wonderful shout-out to Marcia Steins. She's a brand-new Patreon uh, patron. Yeah. I'll get that out. She's a Patreon patron, and she topped out at our highest level. Another $10 patron. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you very much, Marsha. We appreciate that. Yes. Are you ready to get into this case? I have carefully curated this story because it's so weird, so interesting, and also takes place during the Christmas holiday season. Okay. I like where you're going with this. So and I, I thought it would be a great mountain murders case. You told me a little bit about it. It's a pretty intriguing case. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. It's one of those cases that is just so shrouded in mystery. It's kind of hard to know what the truth is. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder where you dig these things up at. Oh, you know me. I'm just like a little grave digger. <laughs> oh. Out there digging six feet under looking for stories. Come on, I thought I seen a story around here somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so are you ready, Dylan? Yeah, let's dive in head first. You have the wiggles out? Yes, I'm, I think I'm still. I think Sometimes I, you get a little wiggly in your seat. I have to get on to you. Yeah, because it's this vintage uh, lobby furniture chair. But it's a really cool chair. It's super awesome. I will never part with that chair. I can't because the vinyl intact on it <laughs> but it does make noise when i move in it yeah so be still so i'm gonna be still i got all my subs of coffee and be still and i'm i'm ready to go okay george sodder was born with the name giorgio sadu wow tula sardinia italy in 1895 okay he immigrated to the united states at the age of 13 with an older brother once they went through ellis island the brother returned to Italy, basically like leaving George here as a 13-year-old on his own. Wow. So he came here with him, got him processed at Ellis Island, and, and went back. Like, Peace out, bro. Wow. That's kind of scary for a 13-year-old. Have a nice life. Yeah. It's a new country. You'll figure it out. And this is around the turn of the century. So, I mean, New York at that time, a lot of immigrants flooding in. Yeah. It was kind of a crazy place. I'm sure it was. It was wild. I'm sure as a uh, prohibition I, would happen probably shortly after his arrival. I could only imagine uh, New York is really popping at that point. George would change his last name to Sodder. He never talked much about why he left Italy, and that's going to be important to our story coming up. Okay. Sodder worked on the railroads in Pennsylvania, basically carrying water and supplies to other workers. He was a young kid. 
wasn't a lot he could do. So he was like a gopher, kind of. But he, yeah, exactly. But he was a hard worker. After a few years, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he found work as a driver. He eventually started his own trucking company, at first hauling fill dirt to construction sites, and then later helping transport coal that was being mined in the region. Oh, yeah. So definitely living that American dream. Yes, that whole, uh, you can come here if you work hard, you know, work for somebody, then save your money and be smart about it and start your own little business. And he definitely was. I mean, he came here at 13, was completely on his own, and built up to owning a trucking company. That's amazing. He met Jenny Cipriani. She was working as a storekeeper when they met. She had also immigrated from Italy with her family. They meet. They get married. Fall in love. All of that. Okay, living the dream. The couple settled outside nearby Fayetteville which had a large population of Italian immigrants. They had a two-story house a few miles out of town. In 1923, they had the first of their nine children. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of kids. Man, back then, the big families blows my mind. Well, I just feel really bad for her uterus. I always do. Once you get past three or four, I mean, come on. I mean, I've had two, and (laughs) my poor bladder, I have to pee like every six minutes. (laughs) Nine kids? Does she just go around, like, just pissing on herself all the time? Probably. Well, that's where those stair-step <laughs> kids, where they literally, you can line them up and they go from big to small. And she's just, between being pregnant and having them and taking care of other little ones, of I course, just... being Italian, they were probably Catholic. Yeah, there's that. There's always the pull and pray method, but it seems like they weren't really practicing that. <laughs> on with our story. George's business prospered, and they became a very well-respected middle-class family in town. Good people. However, George had some pretty strong opinions and was very outspoken. Okay. I relate. No. (laughs) (laughs) So do you. Yeah. I can can bloviate with the best of them. But he was very outspoken about his native Italy, because at the time... Mussolini was the dictator, and they had a very fascist regime in Italy. So, yeah, that, that's um, post-World War One. Yes. Okay, so, yeah, that was kind of a big deal. And, you know, we're heading out of World War One into World War Two. You had, of course, the crime families running things in Italy, the yep. fascist government. The mafia- mafiosa. Yeah, just not a good situation there. And like I said, George didn't really talk about why he had left Italy. But once he got to the U.S., he was very opinionated on what was happening in his homeland. Okay. This led to arguments with other members of the immigrant community. So it kind of split, you know, some people agreed with him, but others thought he just needed to pipe down. Must have been some pretty big opinions he had there. Very disrespectful about the motherland. Right. That kind of thing. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. So for 20 years, they're having fucking kids. <laughs> 23 to 43. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of fucking kids. Okay, so by then, their second oldest, Joe, had left for World War II. He was serving in the military. The following year, which would have been 44, of course, Mussolini was executed. But George Sauter didn't stop talking politics. And left some of his friends and neighbors with some feelings, some hard feelings. Oh, wow. 
you know, probably much like our current political climate. Very yeah. divisive. Right. And if you've got this large Italian community, they're probably kind of close-knit. Typically. So, yeah, he had a reputation. And some people didn't care for him. Damn that old George. Right. In October of 1945, there was a life insurance salesman who tried to sell George some life insurance. And George refused. He wasn't interested. He didn't want to buy what this man was selling. And the guy warned him that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Wow. A bit of anger. That's a hard sell. And then right he brought there. up George's criticisms of the Italian government, Mussolini, and how disrespectful George had been to their home country. <laughs> Damn. So this guy's pissed. Okay. There was another man who wanted work from George because he did own this big trucking company. And when George didn't give the man a job, the guy told George that his house was going to catch on fire because of a fuse box. Well, George thought it was really puzzling because he just rewired the house. He had a new electric stove installed. And when he did, he basically rewired the entire house. The electric company had come out. They had done an inspection. The new wiring is completely safe. You're set to go. So he was like, what are you talking about? My fuse box. So he's uh, upgraded everything. Yeah. I guess with the electric stove installation, he had to rewire everything to support it. I mean, we live in an old-ass house that has the fuse box with the old-time yeah. fuses. I say this house quite possibly has some cloth wiring behind the walls. Oh, that's scary. Isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. In the weeks before Christmas, his older sons had reported seeing a very strange car kind of parked along the main road. And there were some men sitting in the car watching the solder children, like, going to school and coming home from school. What? So they felt like they were being watched and being followed. Were they men in black? Um, I don't know. (laughs) Who were these strange men? Christmas Eve 1945. This is when our story really takes place. Marion, who is the oldest daughter, she'd been working in town at a, like, dime store. Oh, yeah. She surprised three of the younger kids, Martha, 12, Jenny, who is AJ, and then Betty, who's five, with some new toys that she'd bought there as gifts. I'm sure she got a good discount. (laughs) Well, the kids were, of course, very excited. It's Christmas Eve. And the family, from what I understand, did most of their celebrating like Christmas Eve. I always like to do that. Yeah. Instead of doing it Christmas morning, they were kind of open. So, of course, the kids are like really excited. And they asked their mom if they could stay up past what was their usual bedtime. Of course, mom, feeling the festivities and and the excitement of her kids. She told them they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys were still awake, and that would be 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis, and that they remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed. Oh, so mom's going to kind of turn in? Yeah. Let the kids have a little bit of a little time by themselves there, kind of? Her husband, George, and the two older boys, John, who is 23, and remember he was Going off to serve in World War II, I guess he was home for the Christmas holiday. And George Jr., who was 16, had spent the day working with their dad, and they were already in bed. So Jenny, the mom, takes Sylvia, the baby, upstairs, and they go to bed together. So because she sleeps with the baby. Kids living it up. The middle-aged kids there, I guess. Sometime around midnight, the phone rings. Jenny wakes up. She has to go all the way downstairs to answer the call. 
it's a woman, and she didn't recognize the voice. The woman is asking for a person who doesn't live there. So Jenny says, I'm sorry, you know, you've got the wrong number. She could hear laughter, sort of disembodied voices in the background, glasses clinking, like whoever is calling is like having a party and living it up on the other end. Yeah. Of course, it's Christmas Eve. They throwing down. She knows that the lights were still on and the curtains hadn't been drawn, which was unusual because in their home, the last person who went to bed, even if it was one of the kids, would make sure all the lights were off, close the curtains in the living room. Her daughter, Marion, had fallen asleep on the couch. At that point, Jenny assumed the other kids had maybe stayed up later and gone off to bed. And they slept on a top floor, like, attic space Yeah, that had been converted into their bedroom. So she goes over, closes the curtains, turns out the lights, goes back to bed. It was maybe an hour later, so probably around 1 a.m., that Jenny hears the sound of something hitting the roof. It's Santa Claus. <laughs> a loud bang, then like a rolling noise. Like maybe Santa Claus got drunk and then fell off the roof. Uh-oh. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he was drinking rum and the rum bottle rolled off. That'd probably be a... That'd probably be a... Fucking eggnog. Well, strike you as strange. I'm sure it's likely a tin roof. You know, very noisy yeah, roof, exactly. if you will. Well, it, she was a little startled. She waits a few more minutes. She doesn't hear anything, so she goes back to sleep. Well, after about another half hour, she wakes up again, this time smelling smoke. When she got up, she found that the room where George had an office space was on fire. And it was over near, like, where the telephone line and fuse box were located. Oh, my God. She goes and wakes her husband up, and then she wakes up the two older boys. Well, by this time... I mean, the family is frantic. George, Jenny, and the four kids, Marion, baby Sylvia, John and George Jr., all escape the house. They are frantically calling to the children upstairs. No response. They couldn't go up the stairway itself because it was already engulfed in flames. I mean, they live in like a timber frame type of house. Oh, yeah. It's going to go up quick. And this is an old house. So, yeah, it's pretty quick, you know. How scary for some parents. Yeah. John Sauter would tell police in his first interview that after the fire started, that he had gone up to the attic to tell his siblings who were sleeping that they needed to get out. But then he later changed his story to say that he had only, like, called up there, but he didn't actually see them. Right. Well, the phone wasn't working. Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern, but both were unsuccessful. <laughs> but both were unsuccessful, either because they couldn't reach the operator or because the phone was broken, like the phone line. But they were having a problem, like reaching a an operator, basically. The neighbor, the motorist, they kept trying to call, and eventually they were successful in getting the fire department. Yeah, but by this time, I mean... But they had to go all the way to, like, the center of town to get on a phone to call. Yeah. And it's just, like, one thing after another with these well, poor people. Even the responses and things just... Everything was so much slower back then, you know? You know, everything's simpler, slower. Well, this is the middle of the night. Everyone's asleep. Here's George, probably in his pajamas. He's barefoot. He's trying to climb the wall and break open this attic window. He cuts his arm in the process. He and his sons try to find this ladder 
that they had propped up by the house. Couldn't find it. They were trying to get up in the attic to get these kids out. They could not find the ladder. And it was they, like always in the same space. That's weird. A lot of weird stuff going on here. Now, later, they're going to find the ladder near this embankment. It's like a 75-foot embankment drop as if somebody had like tossed it over. So, intentionally move this ladder. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of... It seems very strange. It doesn't seem like your typical accident. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. Again, it was December. It's cold. There's snow on the ground. Frigid. I mean, West Virginia, that's a bit higher up yeah. you know, on the mountain than we are. So, it's pretty cold there. And you got to consider in the 40s. Things were colder then. Probably a lot colder. George then tried to pull two trucks up to the house and use them to climb up into the attic. But he couldn't get either of the trucks to start, although they had worked perfectly during the day before. That's, yeah, someone's doing... The trucks were dead. There was no explanation as to why these trucks would not start. So everything they try is not working. All this stuff that worked that day, this ladder that's always in this spot. The trucks won't start. The the phone line isn't working. The phones aren't working. It just happens to be a fire around your damn fuse box that you just had upgraded that multiple people have said your house is going to burn down connected to your... I mean, this is very strange. The family watched the house burn down and collapse, and it only took about 45 minutes for the entire house to just be gone. Wow. Can you imagine? No, and you I think... say that quite a bit with these stories, but can you imagine as a parent these kids watching their home burn, that in itself is tragic. And how many kids are upstairs? But there's five kids upstairs. Oh, my God. Five kids. The siblings outside and the parents. I mean, that would have I to be agonizing. I watch my home with my children inside burn. And I you try everything you try. Nothing's working. They assume the other five children had died in the blaze. The fire department, and of course, lo- they're low on manpower. They're also a pretty rural area, so they have to rely on the firefighters to, a lot of them are volunteer. A lot of the guys are off fighting the war. Yeah. The young men of a certain age, off fighting the war, so they don't have the core group of firefighters that they might typically have. The more trained, the more veteran And then you guys consider, at this time, the way phones worked, I mean, you were calling an operator who was, like, connecting you with Working a literal switchboard. Right. Yeah. The firefighters were often responsible for, like, calling each other. Like, hey, man, like, almost like a phone tree. Yeah. we got to go fight this fire. And then they're just, like, calling one another. Yeah. I mean, so this just is, like, chaos. Sounds like it. The fire department didn't actually show up till later that morning. We're talking, like, hours later. So they didn't even show up near... Any time to be able to do anything about it. No. I mean, this house is gone in 45 minutes, and it takes these people, like, some hours to get out. Unlikely. A man named F.J. Morris said that it also was, like, slowing his response because he couldn't drive the fire truck. That doesn't seem practical. So he had to wait until someone who could drive was available and came to the station to get the fire truck. Yeah, why didn't they give him some classes on how to drive a damn fire truck? I don't know. How's he the chief? That's weird. I mean, have you met people today that work in some of these positions? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. That's <laughs> so it's true. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where they put the idiot in charge. And ah. they think that they know what they're doing. I'm yeah. not saying this guy was an idiot, but come on, if you're the fucking fire chief, you should know how to drive the goddamn truck. I'm sorry. If you're the chief and you're over everything, you should know how to do every single thing That's connected like to that That's like being the head house. baker and not knowing how to turn on the oven, right? Basically. The firefighters arrive late, and by the time they show up, all they found was ashes in what had been the solder's basement. So the house fully engulfed, burns up completely. Yep. Not a drop of damn water on it to try to slow it down. By 10 a.m., the chief, Morris, had told the solders that he hadn't seen any bones in the aftermath. I mean, it might have been expected, but there were all these kids in the house, and you would expect, I mean, I don't know. You'd think they would find something. Well, yeah, to burn up a body completely, including bones, you need some concentrated, contained heat. Is that enough? It all falling into the basement and, and never being, you know, they didn't actually try any water or anything. Would it be hot enough once it falls in all on itself and keeps going? I don't know. I, I, it seems like some bones would have been there. The chief believed that the five children had died in the fire. However, later on, some experts would state that the fire would not have been hot enough to burn those bodies completely. I don't think so either. And we'll get into that more here in a few minutes. Now, the Sodders are clearly devastated by the loss of their children and their home. They start to question the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by some sort of electrical problem, the Christmas lights that the family had up remained on throughout the fire's early stages. Well, if it was an electrical problem, then why were our Christmas lights still on and working? Like, wouldn't all of the power in the house go out? Wouldn't the lights stop working? Well, if it started in the fuse box, you figure you'd lose all that at once, right? I mean, I'm no expert on that. Well, yeah, but, but they're saying, you know, hey, if it was a fuse box, then the power should have gone out. You'd think so. Then they later found the ladder that I had mentioned before missing from the side of the house down that 75-foot embankment. Where none of them put it. No. Would never put a perfectly good ladder and toss it over the bank. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house, that the house's phone line had actually be, had not been burned in the fire, but had been cut by someone. It had to be a person willing to climb up 14 feet up the pole and reach about two feet out away to cut the line. Wow. Yeah. Because initially they thought that it had just burned in the fire, but this phone repairman's like, no, this line was cut. At the pole. Yeah. Very strange. There was a man that neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire. Now, he's identified arrested. This guy admits to the theft, but claimed that he had not, um, of course, started the fire, didn't have anything to do with it, but that he had cut the phone line, thinking it was the power line. But why? But there's no record identifying like who this man is or if he even exists. And why would he have wanted to cut utility lines if he's just stealing a block and tackle? I mean, that's never been explained. Right, which is likely being kept outside in a shed or, you know, somewhere where the tools are. Yeah, what would that have to do with, like, cutting the power Nothing. to the house? Why would you be messing with lines at all if you're just stealing some property out of a shed? 
Jenny Sauter said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with their other four children, would have never been able to make it out of the house. Right. Why? Well, they just, they probably wouldn't have been able to see. There wouldn't have been any lights. Oh, there yeah. Have been and the lights are, smoke, yeah. And, and the, the lights. Christmas lights are on. I mean, the, she's just like, we probably wouldn't have made it out. Okay. You know, like we're upstairs. It's burning and it's dark and full of smoke. I mean, her whole thing was, we wouldn't have probably made it out alive. But, but we could see, so we were able to run out of the house. Yeah. Jenny Sauter didn't want to accept it at all. There were no traces of the kids' bodies you know, having been burned in this fire. Many of the household appliances had been found. Some of them were still recognizable in the ash. Like they would find pieces of what they knew was the stove or knew was probably what they called what the frigidary. Yeah. (laughs) Even fragments of the tin roof were discovered. So it was not a 100% complete loss. As they're digging through, they're finding some things from the house. She started testing her own theories. She had read an article in a newspaper. It was basically an account of another house fire where seven people had perished. Bones were uncovered in the aftermath. So believing the bone fragments of her own kids should have been found as well, she started basically performing some science. (laughs) She decided to burn some small piles of animal bones to see if they would be consumed fully. None of them ever were. An employee of a local crematorium told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty damn hot. And that's for two hours. Wow. A lot longer, a lot hotter than this house fire could have been. You're talking about someone who works at a place that is designed to burn everything. Mm -hmm. And he knows in that furnace designed to get turn bones to ashes that he knows how long. You can go at 2,000 degrees and still have bones. Yeah. I mean, That's people pretty, who work in crematoriums, yeah. like when you get your loved one's ashes, yeah, they're scooping the ashes up out of the oven or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And they're finding teeth, pieces of bone. That's very common. Even after they tried to turn the bones to ashes. Yeah. At a very hot, very concentrated, contained heat. Exactly what you need to burn up a body completely. The Sauter's trucks, the failure to start, I mean, that was something that always, like, bothered the family. And George Sauter believed that they'd been tampered with, maybe by the same man who had stolen the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of his son-in-laws did an interview with the Charleston Gazette Mail back in, like, 2013. And he had come to believe that maybe Sauter and his two sons had flooded the engines trying to start them because they were in such a panic. Yeah. I mean, and that's possible. That's very possible. But did they work fine afterwards? Because that would go, you know, that would evaporate off in the truck. Once you flood a vehicle, leave it alone for a while. It'll start if there's nothing else wrong. Yeah, and see, I don't know. Yeah. part of the story, but that's very likely it could have happened. Some accounts have suggested that the wrong number phone call to the solder house might have somehow been connected to the fire and the disappearance of these kids. Like seeing if they're home? Yep. Like perhaps someone was working with this mysterious arsonist to make sure they're all there before they go burn the house down. But investigators were were able to track down the woman who had made the phone call. How in the world? Okay, what did... Some prehistoric forensic... Testing. What? I don't know. What did she have to say? Well, she confirmed that she had called the house, but it had been a wrong number on her part. 
All right. Honest mistake. In spring 1946, just a few months after the fire, George and Jenny bulldozed over the house. Jenny's daughter planted a flower garden to memorialize her children, and she would take care of it for the rest of her life. And that's sad and beautiful at the same time. But the daughters were just not convinced that their children were dead. They just could not get past the idea that something was amiss with the situation. Yeah, you're talking not just one body or two, five bodies. Not, not none of them fell in a way that got covered by, you know, like a big chunk of beam or something to where there was no, absolutely no evidence can be found that there was bodies in the fire. Well, speaking of evidence, there was some evidence that supported their belief that the fire was not an electrical failure, that it may have been deliberately set. There was a bus driver that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve that said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house, which might explain the loud bang that Jenny heard hitting the roof Christmas morning. Maltov. Yeah, or as my daughter calls them, Mazel Tov cocktails. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to tell them that story sometime. It's pretty funny. But yeah, so yeah, that's what I kind of thought when you said that. You hear it hit and then roll down. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few months after the fire, when the snow had all melted, Sylvia, now that's the toddler, she's the two-year-old. I keep referring to her as the baby, but I mean, she is, she's a baby. They were out kind of in, you know, in the area. She finds this small, uh, Sylvia finds a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in a bush. George looks at it and calls it a pineapple bomb, which is kind of like a hand grenade or some other device used in combat. Yeah, it's an old-style hand grenade. It actually has ridges on it. It does look kind of like a small piece of fruit. The family later claimed that even though the fire marshal had concluded it was this electrical fire or whatever, that they thought the fire had actually started on the roof, but they didn't have any way to prove it. Because by that point, there's no home, there's no evidence. Well, yeah, they don't have the modern equipment we have now Right. All the stuff they can do, the you know, look for residues and things like that. Other witnesses claim to have seen the children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said that she had seen them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. All right. Another woman who worked at, like, a restaurant that's nearby, somewhere between Fayetteville and Charleston, claimed that she'd served them breakfast the morning after, on Christmas morning, and noted that there was a car in the parking lot with Florida license plate that the kids got into, like loaded into after she fed them breakfast. That's strange. The Sodders would hire a private investigator, a man named C.C. Tinsley. He was from a town called Golly Bridge. I'm <laughs> pronouncing that correctly. He, they were going to hire him to look into the case. Now, he'd learned about that insurance salesman who had threatened George with the fire yeah, because of the Mussolini thing, that insurance salesman had actually been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire as an accident. What the hell's odds of that? He also heard some rumors around Fayetteville that even though no remains had been found in the ashes, the fire chief had found a heart, which he packed into a metal box and buried. A heart? There had been quite a few rumors that the chief had found, you know, lots of charred bones and body parts 
but that he didn't want to further upset the family by telling them, like, I found pieces of your children. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to find tissue, a heart made out of soft tissue, but every, supposedly everything else is burning. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so here's the story. The fire chief, Morris, had told his minister about the heart. Well, the minister eventually confirmed this story to George. Like, that he yeah, did tell is, me that. This is what he told me. Wow. So, George Sauter and the private detective Tinsley went to Morris. They confront him with the story. He agrees to show them where he had buried it. They dig it up. They find a box. They take it to a funeral director who examined it. In reality, it was a beef liver. Very fresh and had never been exposed to fire. More rumors start circulating around Fayetteville that Morris had admitted that it was liver and that he didn't take it from the fire. He thought he would satisfy the solder's questions Yeah. by burying it and then they could dig it up and he could be like, see, your kids are dead. Well, that's a stupid plan. But that's plan. fucking elaborate and weird. That's elaborate. Know? Weird. You're counting on some factors you don't have control of as far as the minister admitting, kind of breaching his confidence, if you will, of you telling him something. I mean, this sounds like some kind of fucking weird conspiracy. And it's a fucking fresh beef liver that's not even been burned. So how's that supposed to work? George Sauter begins seeing his children. At one point, there's a magazine where he sees a photograph of this young ballet dancer who kind of looked like his daughter. So he jumps in the car, drives all the way to New York City to this school. New York City? N yeah. Oh. Demanding to see the girl in the picture. And he was refused. Yeah, because they're like, okay, get out of here, weirdo guy. Exactly. Now, he also wrote the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover personally replied to his letter stating that this case was a local matter and that they couldn't get they they couldn't get involved and they weren't going to reopen it. Yeah, unless you know that your kids were communists, we don't want to talk about them. Yeah. Huh. In August of 1949, George was able to persuade a pathologist named Oscar Hunter to supervise this new search through the dirt at the house. They didn't end up finding a few artifacts including a dictionary that belonged to the kids and some coins. They find several small bone fragments, and they determined that at least one of those was like a human vertebrae. Really? They were sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute. They were confirmed to be the lumbar vertebrae, and that it was from the same person. However, the doctor said the age of the bones, the person would have had to have been at least 22 years old. Which is way older than any of the kids that perished. Exactly. Jesus. The specialist also said that the bone showed no sign of exposure to fire, flame. There was nothing that indicated that the person's bone, that this person would have died in a fire. More cover up. He said he thought it was really strange because these were the only bones that are found. There's a wood fire and that it would have left some sort of like full Good. skeleton. I mean, he's like. This was a wood fire. I mean, he's like, there would have had to be some kind of full skeleton types of bones left behind. He concluded his report saying that the vertebrae had probably come from some dirt that George Sauter had 
brought there to bulldoze over the site. Yeah. And, like, fill it in. Okay. Which made sense, and the detective, or the private eye guy, Tinsley, supported, I guess, the theory that the bone fragments had probably come from, like, a nearby cemetery or oh. place where they had found this dirt. It's just all very strange. I was going to say, maybe they found another murdered person. So he was like, I, I mean, he was like, it makes sense, but I can't explain why this dirt would have been taken from, like, a cemetery. Yeah. brought here? Well, unless it was uh, a very, very old one that had long since been, you know, tombstones gone and such. The Smithsonian eventually would return those bones to George Sauter, and according to their records, they don't have any idea where the location is after they return them. All right. To George Sauter. We don't know what he did with those vertebrae. The investigation started to attract national attention. The West Virginia legislature actually held two hearings on the case in 1950. The governor, Oki L. Pattison, <laughs> and the state police superintendent told the Sodders that the case was hopeless and they closed it at the state level. Wow. The FBI decided to look into the case because they thought there could be some sort of possible interstate kidnapping. Because these leads kept pouring in that people had seen these kids. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I mean, you're talking eyewitness statements and you get mixed in people wanting to be part of the story. Some kooky people come out and that's where you get false confessions and things of that nature. And just people wanting to see the kids. So that can be that can be pretty, you know. Who knows if you can count on that. The FBI worked the case for about two years, but they ended up dropping it because it was going nowhere. Wow. Is this back when the government and like uh, representatives and stuff actually tried to help people? No. I mean, if you will. Yeah, it used to happen when the government worked for you. Am I being punked? No. Where's Ashton Kutcher? No, just like uh, that congressman that went down there in Guyana to check on those people because of a worried family member. Are you talking about like George, the Jim Jones? I was about to say the George Jones cult. Yeah, the George Jones cult. And loves country music. Yeah. Uh, no, you mean Jim Jones? Yeah, Jim <laughs> the Jones. Kool-Aid yeah. Fuckers? Okay. The congressman went in person to check it out and gave his life, you know, to that. Our congressman can't even read reports. Uh-huh. Our congressman. Like law documents. Or Congress something. people would never personally go check on anything for us. No. Assholes. Not unless there's some money involved for them. Well, the Sodders continued for years chasing down leads. I mean, they went all over the place following leads. These people were very committed to trying to solve this mystery. They went to Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Kentucky, New York. They printed flyers. They posted them everywhere they went. They even put up a billboard, like, kind of off the road by where the home had been. Yeah. And the billboard had these pictures of the children and offered a $5,000 reward for any tips that would lead to their safe return. This is money they put up themselves. And yeah, consider this was, like, in the 50s. That's a lot of money at that time, Five thousand dollars well they're getting experts they're looking all in various states and they're just they're spending us not giving up they're spending a small fortune at some point in the early 60s a photo surfaced this is so strange jenny sauter receives a letter postmarked from kentucky it has a photograph inside of a man 
who appears to be her son, Louis Sauter. And on the back, his name is written, and the guy looks like he's about 30, you know, in his early 30s, which her son would have been that age yeah. at that time. Guy looks very similar to her son. But they could not track down the man in the picture, where this letter came from, other than where it was postmarked. Right. They hired another private investigator to look into these leads that were still coming in. And this is 15, 20 years later. George eventually dies in 1969, but he had never given up hope that he would find his children. That's so sad. Jenny and her surviving kids, except for John, never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family just had, I guess, were still seeking answers. Yeah, I I mean, I don't blame them, honestly. If you truly believe that it wasn't what other people in the area said it was as far as a coroner, you know, cops or just how could you ever let that go? If you think there's a possibility that your children didn't die on that fire and that they were out there somewhere. I mean, just hope, clinging on to some kind of hope. Well, after George passed away, Jenny stayed in the family home. She ended up kind of putting a fence around it, adding additional rooms. And for the rest of her life, she would wear black like she was in mourning or when she would go out and tend the garden at the site of the old house. Wow. After her death, which was in 1989, the remaining family members took down that weathered billboard. It was still up. In 1989. Yeah. That's crazy. There's some weird stuff surrounding the fire. I mean, logic says, okay, these children, they had to burn in this fire. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, it's truly a mystery. So what happened to the Sauter children? Did they die tragically in this terrible fire? Or were they taken, possibly raised under new identities? Could they be out there somewhere? And what motivation is it for someone to do that? You know what I mean? Again, there were some theories circulating that George's just criticism of the Italian government right. could have pissed off some mafia, like some crime members. Well, it sounds like he not only possibly criticized the government, but also the things the mafia was doing back in his homeland. Because, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it was just the killing grounds. I mean, they killed any and everybody that stood against them or tried to stop their strong arm tactics because everything they brought to America, they perfected back in Italy before they brought it over. A couple of things that I read while researching this case suggested that George believed that the mafia was responsible for the fire. Okay, but uh, again, taking the kids is not really, they're going to kill everybody. You know what I mean? That doesn't seem like something they would do. But But then again, if they're into some sort of human trafficking. Well, that's true. Could have possibly happened. Well, they could have seen the opportunity to devastate this man and destroy him completely, you know, his life, and even mentally destroy him. But at the same time, they may have hoped everyone died and nobody got out. So then some of them getting out may have been like, oh, shit, we want them all to die. But yeah, also an opportunity to make some money. So, I mean, I guess that's not totally far-fetched. It is understandable why George and Jenny could not accept their children's (laughs) fate. I mean, you see a lot of that with suicide. Yeah. Family members are often in denial and will claim that 
their loved one didn't commit suicide, that there's foul play. They couldn't. They never would. Right. When there's clearly evidence that it was a suicide. I mean, I've personally known family members that just refuse to believe their son or daughter, husband would have done this. Right. So, I mean, I think when it comes to your loved ones, your mind can convince you of a lot of things. That's true. Just like George seeing this photo in a magazine of the ballerina. And driving Automatically believing it's his daughter and driving all the way to New York to try to find this kid. Which uh, everything was harder back then, including traveling from state to state. So that wasn't an easy task for him to drive all the way up to New York City. So he was very driven, very, you know, I've got to find out if this is my daughter or not. Which, there's part of me that really can understand that. Definitely. It would be really hard to accept, even if you just, like, had a little bit of doubt. Just that glimmer of hope. Yeah, it would be really hard to give up. Yeah. When it comes to your kids. Yeah, I don't blame them on that. But this is a very sad, strange story. Sylvia is the only member of the family that's still alive, the two-year-old. Really? When this happened, yeah, she's, you know, she's an older lady now. She still hopes that one day she'll have answers about her five siblings and what happened to them. Yeah, I sadly don't think that's going to happen. This has been the very mysterious case of the Sodder children. Wow. It's a very strange one you dug up there. It is. So strange. So sad. Yeah, so many unanswered questions. Well, just this family, they don't have any closure. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I mean, it, would ju- it would just be really sad, and uh, I don't even know how you deal with that. You know, dying and never truly feeling like you had an answer as to what happened to your kids. Well, I mean, there's enough stuff there. Um, having replaced, upgraded the fuse box and stuff, which that actually could lead to an accident if it wasn't properly installed. The truck's not working. Two trucks, not just one. The ladder, that's the odd, I think that's the most glaring thing, is the ladder that's always in this one spot, basically propped up against the house. It sounded like probably working on the house, you know, things like that. And it's found over an embankment where somewhere they'd never put it. That's very strange. What about the coincidence of the phone line being cut the phone by line, this random, this rando intruder, stealing a block and who's tackle, trying to steal some shit? But he's climbing utility poles, and it just so happens it's on the night that this fire happened. And instead of cutting the power line, he happens to cut the telephone line. That's don't make any sense at all. And then what about the Sodders finding this pineapple grenade? That's a fucking grenade. I mean, come on. Do you believe that they really found it? Or do you think that maybe they were just trying to bring more attention to the case? Because that ran through my mind as well. I mean, I, I guess mean, anything's possible. I mean, you'd like possible. to believe that these people are like reliable narrators in their own story. But yeah. you know how people be. It's true. I mean. Uh, it could have been planted like, oh, look what we found. Just in hopes that it might reopen the case or bring more attention to the case. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. Right? I mean, or it could have been. But you want to believe that these are good people. It could have been some other sicko, like, uh huh, we'll, we'll fuck with them. I'm going to put this damn. It could have been a decommissioned grenade, for all we know, you know, not functioning anymore. Just just to mess with them. Very strange. It's, there's a lot. That's just. It's not cut it's and dry. It's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it's, not, it's not cut and dry, and it is one of the strangest stories I've ever heard. It really is. But thank you for checking out Mountain Murders. 
We have a live show coming up. Are you excited? Oh, I'm so ready. A month away. Can't wait. It's going to be January the 18th at Fleetwoods in Asheville, North Carolina, a great venue. A very cool venue. A rock and roll wedding chapel. Oh my God. Could we have a rock, like a rock and roll mountain murders wedding? Are we going to marry other people? Yes. If you want to be married by us, if you want the power of mountain murders, to marry you? Do we have to get ordained? No. Come oh, to the live show. We'll take care of you. Yeah, we'll have somebody else do it. You're asking too many questions. Oh, sorry. I'm the logistics person here. I'll work it out. You just tell me when and where to show up. <laughs> huh. Again, thanks for listening to Mountain Murders, and we're just so grateful for you guys. Yeah. And, and we want to give back, so we're trying to give you those 12 episodes this month. Yeah, and we're uh, driving through, or... Driving forward, and she's doing all the work, digging up the cool cases. And thanks again to Marsha, our newest patron. And if you're interested in more ear candy from us, you can go over to Patreon and join for as little as a dollar. That's and right. We are humbled every time we see a new one. And for the ones that have been there from the beginning, we love you guys, and we love all of the listeners. All of the listeners. All the Even listeners. Even if you can't afford to throw us a couple of bucks. That's fine. We make this podcast, all of the content, we produce this just for you guys. It is. We appreciate you. And if you love the podcast, you want to support us, of course, Patreon is a great way to do that. But there are lots of other ways to support the podcast. You can hit subscribe, download us, tell your friends, family to listen in if they're podcast fans. Also, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Uh. and you can leave us a review. If you're feeling froggy, we like those five-star reviews. And let everybody know how awesome we are. Yes, and thank you, everybody.